Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. My name is Long Nguyen. I'm the chairman of the movement for the Renaissance of Vietnam. We are very fortunate today to have as a speaker, Dr. John Lanzowski, who has been fighting communism since President Reagan days. He will provide an informative and insightful lecture on Red China's scheme to subjugate the world. The topic is conquest war with a war, the threat of communist Chinese political influence operations. Dr. John Renzowski is founder, president emeritus, and chancellor of the Institute of War Politics, an independent graduate school of national security, intelligence, international affairs in Washington, D.C., where he served as president for 31 years. IWP is the only school dedicated to teaching all the arts of statecraft, including military strategy, the art of diplomacy, public diplomacy, strategic influence, political warfare, intelligence, counterintelligence, economic strategy, and modern leadership, and how these acts are integrated into national strategy. Dr. Lanzowski has worked for Congressman James Cocter and the late Congressman Chuck Ken. He has served in the State Department Bureau of European Affairs and advisor to Undersecretary for Political Affairs, Lawrence Egan Berger. From 1983 to 1985-87, he was director of European and Soviet Affairs at the National Security Council, where he was principal Soviet Affairs advisor to President Reagan. With a PhD from John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, he has taught at Georgetown University, University of Maryland, and IWP. Among many, many other works, he is the author of Full Spectrum Diplomacy and Grand Strategy in 2011 and of Soviet Perception of U.S. Foreign Policy in 1982. Please join me in welcoming Dr. John Lenzowski. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I am honored to be here, and I thank you, Long, and I thank Kimmy, your wonderful wife, for everything that you do for our country, uh, for the U.S. government, for uh, the cause of freedom in Vietnam, 
for the cause of freedom in the world and, and, and for your service on our board of trustees uh, at the Institute of World Politics. Uh, I'm enormously grateful to you. And, and I just wanted to also say that Long and Kimmy have been uh, so generous as to make available uh, this wonderful conference, conference space here at, at Pragmatics to serve as a, a, a satellite campus for IWP. Uh, and it is a, 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 just one of the great blessings uh, that we can uh, uh, have this here so that for, particularly for those mid-career professionals who are, are working in, uh, in, in Northern Virginia at many of the local agencies who, who uh, would have enormous difficulty trying to get into town uh, for evening classes and so on. So let me just express my gratitude to you for all of these things. It's a great blessing to have your friendship. So um, it's wonderful to see a number of friends here. Uh, and, and thank you for honoring me by your presence on, uh, on a Saturday morning. Uh, today I'd like to discuss what I believe to be a mortal threat to our nation. It's a threat that is designed to intellectually and psychologically disarm, corrupt, and ultimately own America's political and foreign policy decision makers. Communist China has a long-term strategy to replace the United States as the global, global superpower. They call it the 100-year marathon, a race that started with the communist takeover in, in uh, um, 1949 and is designed to conclude in 2049. It's, the strategy involves the development of military power, economic power, and the power of propaganda and strategic influence of many kinds. It's a strategy that represents what the Chinese communists consider to be a Cold War against the United States and our allies, which they have been conducting now against us for decades, and we're only waking up to this fact. It depends upon the historic Chinese use of deception as the most prized strategy for thousands of years, while simultaneously conducting many of the elements of that strategy in plain sight. Specifically, the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, <coughs> seeks the psychological disarmament of its adversaries, which is the precursor to physical disarmament. For years, the principal strategic deception theme has been to persuade us that the Communist Party does not seek world domination, that its totalitarian DNA has changed, that it, that it has changed from being a regime whose legacy is the murder of more of its own people than any other regime in the history of mankind. In short, that they are no longer communists with Chinese characteristics. This strategy is a uniquely Chinese communist strategy. Like Soviet strategy during the Cold War, it relies on a doctrine of protracted conflict which involves making incremental advances at the expense of China's adversaries and neighbors, all the while avoiding a decisive encounter with their main enemy, the United States. It involves taking actions according to the Chinese doctrine of sure, which is the balance of forces, the relative strengths and weaknesses of the protagonists in any conflict. They advance when it is feasible, they stay put 
or retreat when advance would be counterproductive. They seek to erode the power and the maneuvering room of their adversaries until there is no more room for maneuver. China's Cold War strategy involves implementation of what they call the three warfares, public opinion or media warfare, psychological warfare, and legal warfare. I'd like to focus today on what is a de facto amalgam of these three that takes the form of what we may call strategic influence operations. These are designed to shape the opinion of leaders at the federal, state, and local governments, businesses, media, academia, cultural institutions, and others who are in a position to shape the attitudes and policy in ways that serve the CCP's interests. Beijing integrates these influence operations with its other instruments of statecraft, including espionage, technology theft, military strategy, and more. There are several major components to this strategy, uh, organizationally. First, the CCP has thousands of subsidiaries and, and front organizations around the world promoting its party line, distorting accurate perceptions of Chinese strategic attentions and helping the regime gain access to political decision makers and finally influencing them. There are at least 600 such organizations in the United States alone. They are led for the most part by China's United Front Work Department. Communist Chinese businesses play a role. And so do Chinese media, military organizations, academic and research institutions, and many more. Among Beijing's major objectives is to collect intelligence and acquire American advanced technology. To this end, it has succeeded in persuading American universities, national laboratories, and corporations to give Chinese personnel unprecedented access to our intellectual property. They've been so successful that we actually allow them to spy on us. We give them sensitive information. We have permitted Chinese scientists to make 5,000 visits per year to our national laboratories, where a visit constitutes a stay of two weeks to two years. The Obama administration gave out 10-year visas to two million Chinese. They can come and go as they please. How can we be surprised about Chinese military and commercial advances when we are giving them truckloads of our most sensitive intellectual property? The Chinese intelligence presence in the United States is so vast that our counterintelligence services are absolutely overwhelmed. And the Chinese have used all sorts of commercial operations to buy and steal our technology. Some of it is quite open. One method is buying American companies. <clears throat> Once they own them, they have their technology. Another way is to finance American startup companies. Yet another way is by pressuring American companies to set up research and development facilities in China as the price they must pay to establish a factory in China. The Chinese are amazingly aggressive in their efforts to get our technology. Unfortunately, too many Americans cooperate with them. American lawyers organize conferences in places like Silicon Valley to teach Chinese spies how to acquire U.S. technology by circumventing American export controls. Another example of Chinese strategy 
is to con control the global information superhighway. This means controlling all the routers and other infrastructural elements of the World Wide Web. They've come to control almost the entire global system by selling the world the infrastructure of the superhighway at subsidized prices that are cheaper than any company in the world can offer and still make a profit. How has all this happened? It's because many Americans have been persuaded that doing business with China and cooperating with it in scientific research is harmless, while others have been effectively neutralized into silence through Beijing's influence operations. CCP influence over our media explains some of this. Just like the media during the Cold War, our media do not tell us the full truth about Chinese strategic developments that are harmful to our nation's security. If you're an American reporter in China, as a practical matter, you censor yourself so as not to offend the regime. If you report about what I call the four taboos, the four taboo subjects, the China's military buildup, its espionage, its overt and covert influence activities, or its human rights violations, you will make the CCP authorities mad at you and you will face consequences. If your offense is a mild one, they'll restrict your access to Chinese officials who might be the sources of your stories. If your offense is more grave, you may be expelled from the country. Your newspaper or TV station will then be put in, uh, will then put pressure on you or your successor not to write anything that could jeopardize their bureau in Beijing. Then take a look at several of the most influential newspapers in our country. For example, the New York Times and the Washington Post. These two papers and others have accepted millions of dollars every year from Beijing's communist propaganda ministry to publish the periodic China Watch supplement. This propaganda makes China out to be a perfectly benevolent, more normal state, full of cultural, technological, and other innovations. It's designed to diminish concerns that China might be a strategic threat. The real problem with millions, with the millions spent on this propaganda is not so much what it says, it's, it is the effect it has on what is not reported by these papers. And they are not reporting Chinese military developments, espionage, the pervasiveness of Chinese propaganda and influence, these newspapers are so influential that most TV stations follow their lead in what they report and, perhaps most importantly, what they ignore. Meanwhile, alternative media uh, like uh, talk radio, blog posts, YouTube, and others don't have reporters in China, and few concentrate on collecting information about Chinese strategic activities. In addition to corruption money, China influences American journalists by offering them all expense paid trips to China replete with interesting visits to Chinese tourlandia and luxurious dinners. One of the CCP's major influence groups, the China-US Exchange Foundation, KUSEF, KUSEF, recently hosted 120 journalists, journalists from 50 media outlets for such tours with an eye to neutralizing critical attitudes and winning favorable coverage. The media organs represented in these trips 
And this is just one, this has been going on for years, and there are many more than 120. That was just a more recent number. We're talking about representatives from the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Associated Press, the Chicago Tribune, Los Angeles Times, Boston Herald, Boston Globe, Time Magazine, Reuters, Barron's, Politico, ABC, NBC, The Economist, NPR, CNN, Slate, The Huffington Post, and a number of other major regional media outlets. China has also managed to infiltrate huge numbers of citizens into the high-tech companies of Silicon Valley. They are not just involved in technology theft. They have also been reported as serving as fact-checkers for the social media and search engine companies. Some of them participate in censorship of political messages that are offensive to Beijing and its sympathizers in the United States. Meanwhile, China ensures that its propaganda reaches those journalists who could be described as self-loathing Americans who repeat CCP talking points out of ideological sympathy. On a parallel track, the CCP has set up major media operations in the United States. The Chinese Central Television is here, and the operation of several radio stations in various regions, and that includes also stations in Mexico that broadcast into the United States. Beijing's social media infiltration has grown precipitously in recent years. One example is the creation and the insertion of 3,000 short videos on YouTube as part of a single campaign to cover up the genocide of the Uyghur population in Xinjiang province. The cybersecurity firm FireEye reports that Chinese propaganda is being disseminated on some 30 social media platforms and 40 other websites and online forums. They involve thousands of messages, images, and videos promoting the CCP party line and various of its disinformation themes. One way to get prominent opinion leaders to promote China's propaganda is to reward them handsomely. So for example, China has given a $1 million prize to a virologist on the Lancet Journal's Coronavirus Origins Investigation Committee. And they gave it to him for spouting Beijing's propaganda line about the origins of the coronavirus. A million dollar prize. Chinese entities also control and influence the content of the popular news aggregation app, Newsbreak. Newsbreak is the Chinese language version of Yidian Zichun, one of China's top three apps for personalized news dissemination a mouthpiece of the CCP, and the major publishing platform of China's Internet Information Office, which controls the information on China's Internet. Newsbreak is thus an effort to internationalize China's censored Internet content. It claims to reach 45 million Americans. It should not go without notice that the popular video conferencing app, uh, Zoom, has, has had, had a Chinese executive led an effort in coordination with the Chinese intelligence and the internet police to terminate video calls and the accounts of American users who were discussing the 1989 Tiananmen massacre. 
Fortunately, the FBI uncovered a month-long campaign to censor speech offensive to the CCP, and that campaign included a classic active measure which involved fabricating evidence um, that these video calls were designed to promote child abuse, terrorism, pornography, and racism. Another initiative Beijing has taken to control information flows is its cooperative agreement with Russia to work together to establish new rules to control cyberspace. This initiative principally involves working to topple the nonprofit group ICANN that governs the global domain name system and replace it with other relevant international organizations by controlling the UN, the UN subsidiary, the International Telecommunications Union. Another problem also involving self-censorship is how many of our nation's China experts fail to analyze what are in fact the same four taboo subjects that on which our media correspondents do not report. If scholars write about these things, they will be denied a visa to China, won't be able to do field work there, and return to America and impress everyone with their knowledge from there as a result of their visit. One factor that's noteworthy enough to mention is that China has encouraged many of its women to marry American China experts and even US government officials. It's a time-honored form of political influence that has been used for centuries by various powers. Our academic world is being influenced in another way. China has set up 100, over 100 Confucius Institutes at major American universities and Confucius classrooms in high schools. These are ostensibly centers specializing in teaching Chinese language and culture. In fact, they are propaganda centers designed to influence American professors and students uh, to, and to monitor and suppress criticism of China that may be active on a given campus. These centers are subject to Chinese speech codes, communist Chinese speech codes, and thus require self-censorship. They are all controlled not by Americans, but by Chinese agents. These institutes are completely incompatible with American academic freedom, and given their propaganda purposes, they should all be shut down. Fortunately, increased consciousness about the activities of these institutes has resulted in the closure of some of them. But meanwhile, uh, let's observe that there are only 20 American cultural centers in China, and they are subject to Chinese control. Many of our universities are addicted to Chinese students. Until the pandemic erupted, we regularly hosted uh, some 375 Chinese students annually in our academic institutions. And in contrast to American students, they pay full tuition. Our universities don't want to lose this vital income, and so they permit many of those students to have access to our most important scientific and technology research centers. They permit the existence of the Confucius Institutes, and they present to the American people an image of China that it is a normal, peaceful country that has no inimical intentions inimical to our national security. China has given multi-million dollar donations to our universities. All kinds of universities get lots of Chinese money. A $250 million gift to a prominent American university cannot but have 
a, an influential, if not a corrupting effect. This is just part of the larger problem of foreign sovereign funding of our universities, funding designed to promote the donor country's interests. The CCP has especially targeted students in prominent universities and their international relations programs for influence. This work is done under the direction of the United Front Work Department and organizations under its purview, such as the Chinese Students and Scholars Associations, which are, of which there are at least 142 CCP-funded chapters of this organization in the United States, and also the China-U.S. Exchange Foundation, CUSEF. The Chinese Students and Scholars Associations are organizations of Chinese students studying in the United States. They are given both intelligence collection taskings and propaganda responsibilities. They are usually mobilized to conduct pro-Beijing demonstrations of various kinds and to crowd out dissident demonstrations. For years, KUSEF has sponsored all expense-paid trips for students from Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs, thank you, Mom, uh, Georgetown University, Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, Harvard's Kennedy School, the University of Chicago, the Graduate School of Journalism at UC Berkeley, and others. KUSEF has made special efforts to influence historically black colleges and universities. It has established relations with many of these colleges using Confucius Institutes and all-expense-paid trips to China. In recent years, it hosted at least 750 students from these schools. A Washington lobbying firm, Wilson Global Communications, has represented KUSEF and assisted it in establishing these relationships. These have coincided with major outreach to Afro-American legislators, particularly the Congressional Black Caucus, also facilitated by Wilson Global Communications. This, this is an effort that is, that is of a piece with the Soviet effort to try to, ex to, to uh, exploit identity politics in this country and racial divisions. Under similar influence has been targeted against the nation's prominent think tanks. It has been credibly reported that organizations like the Brookings Institution, the East-West Center, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the Atlantic Council, the East-West Center, the Carter Center, and the Center for American Progress have established relationships with CUSEF involving joint projects. In most cases, these institutions have taken communist Chinese funds. The CCP has also wooed a large number of American academic sinologists by offering them all expense paid trips to China. Other academic experts have been given huge consulting fees and research grants to supply their scientific and technological expertise to China. Much of this has been done through the Thousand Talents program. The lucrative the arrangements these experts have with China ensures that none of them will say things critical of the regime. 
A new instrument of the CCP has been to discourage criticism of its policies, that has been used to discourage criticism of its policies, has been a lawsuit levied against a scholar based at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation who violated one of the four taboos by highlighting human rights violations in China. The relationships that Communist China has established with U.S. institutions, many of which are lubricated by Chinese money, have induced cooperation with Chinese censorship. For an example is Cambridge University Press's removal of 300 offensive articles from the online version of its scholarly journal, the China Quarterly, at the request of the Communist Chinese. Fortunately, in response to a worldwide outcry against the move, Cambridge University Press reversed its decision. But it did it in the first place. In another example, at the request of Chinese researchers, surely at the direction of CCP propaganda authorities, the National Institutes of Health deleted the data of the earliest genome sequences of the coronavirus in China. Deleted these data from the National Library of Medicine's database on these sequences. This was part of the ongoing cover-up and, 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 and the active measures campaign to direct global attention away from the Chinese origins of the pandemic. That campaign, let us remember, involved charges that the U.S. military produced the, the virus, that it was spread by U.S. athletes, and most recently that it came from U.S. harvested Maine lobsters. This cooperation with Beijing is typical of researchers like Peter Tesak at the EcoHealth Alliance, who, having worked with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and attended its, its sponsored conferences, and Chinese-sponsored conferences, reliably repeats Chinese talking points. The United, work, the United Front Work Department and its fronts have been consistently active influencing Chinese-Americans, their organizations, and their media. The CCP fronts emphasize flesh and blood ties to the mother country. United Front officials have met regularly with so-called hometown associations, groups of Chinese immigrants whom the CCP seeks to co-opt to Beijing's cause. These fronts exploit ethnic identity politics and have sought to magnify anti-Chinese ethnic prejudice and to mobilize defensive re reactions against it. In New York City, a Chinese expatriate propagandist associated with CCP front organizations has managed to join a small committee advising the New York Police Department and the local district attorney's office on what constitutes a hate crime. Chinese Communist Fronts have also worked with pro-CCP organizations in San Francisco, which has a large Chinese-American population, to mobilize support for the Black Lives Matter organization. Chinese intelligence uses rewards and threats to Chinese students to become informers against Chinese nationals who dissent from Beijing's party line. 
Chinese fronts have also mobilized and directed thousands of Chinese students to conduct counter-protests against and to drown out anti-CCP demonstrations with uh, and, and demonstrate demonstrations done by American citizens in San Francisco. They also target exiled groups such as the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and uh, Falun Gong practitioners with threats to their relatives in China if those exiles speak out against CCP policies. Threats have also been leveled against U.S. media organizations that oppose regime policies. The United Front sponsors peaceful reunification associations, such as the China Council for the Promotion of Peaceful Unification. This has 30 chapters in the United States. They are among the most important vehicles for maintaining links and influence over Chinese Americans. They not only address the Taiwan issue, but serve as propaganda con conduits, as sponsors of cultural events, and as instruments to recruit Chinese Americans to serve Communist Party interests, to quash any emergent anti-CCP organizing, and to foment racial divisions. Another task of the United Front through its subsidiary, the Over Overseas Chinese Office, is to encourage Chinese citizens living in the United States, as well as Chinese Americans, especially those under its influence, to participate actively in American politics in ways that support Beijing's interests. Part of the overseas Chinese policy of the CCP is to track Chinese nationals who dissent from CCP policies to silence their criticism so that that testimony does not spread to Americans. In addition to tracking and monitoring Chinese students at American universities, one effort called Fox Hunt attempted to stalk, kidnap, and deport to China several Chinese dissidents. The CCP has also had consistent efforts to influence the U.S. armed forces. These consist of efforts to encourage mirror imaging among American military leaders, inducing them to believe that the Chinese armed forces are just like ours, a national defense force, as opposed to the reality of what they are, a force dedicated to the defense of the Communist Party. A principal organization dedicated to these efforts is the Liaison Department of the People's Liberation Army's former General Political Department. It's dedicated to coordinating the activities of a number of front organizations, <coughs> including friendship and cultural associations. Meanwhile, the China Association for International Friendly Contact, a front organization of the former General Political Department, is also responsible for propaganda and strategic influence activities. An example is the Sanya Initiative, an effort to promote relations between retired officers of the PLA and the U.S. Armed Forces. Then there's the problem which may be the biggest of all. This is the neutralization of large parts of the American business community. As you know, many American companies have been inspired to do business in China. Some do so because they can manufacture products there at lower cost. 
Others do so because they vainly hope to sell large quantities of their products to the Chinese. The price for setting up a factory in China is not just the requirement that the company move its research and development operations there. It is that the American business leaders are told that they should lobby their elected representatives for legislation and, re and regulations that serve the mutual interests of American and Chinese businesses. This effectively has turned into many American businesses into lobbyists for Beijing. And that doesn't even count the, ro the role of fancy law and lo law firms and lobbying firms that China pays to influence U.S. policy. There's another price. It's a grave one. Some companies have such an interest in protecting their business relations with China that they will do things that will actively harm American national security interests. A few years ago, it was uh, the CEO of one of our major defense corporations who helped the Chinese correct the major errors they were suffering in making ballistic missile launches. One American CEO with major Chinese business interests was also a major benefactor to a famous American think tank. And he didn't like the clinical analysis that was being done by one of its military analysts on the Chinese military. They th he thought that that analyst's work would alarm Americans and that tensions with China would increase and that his company's business interests would be jeopardized. He arranged to have that analyst fired and given a big dollop of hush money. When that analyst moved to another think tank, he was fired from it as well for the same reasons. This kind of corruption is not restricted to scholars. An unseemly number of former cabinet members, including secretaries of state, of defense, and even intelligence agency chiefs have been either directly or indirectly on Beijing's payroll. One of these was directly on the payroll of a notorious front company of the People's Liberation Army. That former cabinet secretary was serving on the board of a prominent think tank where one of our longtime professors at IWP used to work. When our professor complained publicly about how such former officials do not disclose their China business interests when testifying before Congress, that former Secretary of State arranged to have our professor fired from that think tank. Another of these former officials has been on the board of directors of a Chinese company involved in gambling and suspected international money laundering. There are many other examples. The one thing in common with all of these senior officials is that for years they have downplayed any concerns about the rising strategic threat from communist China. American trade promotion groups have also played a major role in selling access for American businesses to top Chinese leaders and facilitating access by Chinese, for Chinese businesses to American political leaders. Now, what about it, the influence over our politicians? Chinese money has played a corrupting role in other ways. They've given donations to American political candidates. Former President Clinton received a million-dollar donation during his primary election campaign from an Indonesian-based front company of the PLA, the People's Liberation Army. 
Such contributions are, most of them are covert and illegal. China has invested significantly in Facebook ads to influence various recent electoral contests. They were not as extensive as Russian ads, but Beijing has been learning. China invests in targeted, in, in China cor Chinese corporations uh, in cooperation with their influence uh, organizations, invest in targeted congressional districts in order to influence those districts' congressional representatives. One prominent example, a joint Chinese-American venture, uh, a company in the district of a very prominent congressman, was facing some trouble. The congressman, in the interest of, of uh, helping his constituents who worked for that company, went to bat for the company, and in the process ended up assisting Chinese communist strategic interests inadvertently. Beijing's organizations also establish relations with local officials, such as mayors and state legislatures, cultivating them over the long term with an eye to, to influencing them when they become governors, senators, and congressmen. They use commercial carrots and sticks to persuade elected officials at all levels. Amongst these are Chinese investments in a given locality that can yield jobs and tax revenues. Local politicians find it hard to reject such opportunities. So, as an example of the intelligence analysis that China conducts to serve this end, a Chinese think tank working with the United Front, a, 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 it's, it's called DNC Think, drew up a report on the governors of all 50 states. It categorized them according to whether they are friendly or unfriendly, or whether people just, whether China just doesn't know about their attitude, or whether they have as yet a firm position vis-a-vis -vis the PRC. Another vehicle, of course, and I touched on it a little bit, has been the use of American public relations and lobbying firms to represent Chinese business interests in the United States. One of those businesses is Hickey Vision, which makes surveillance cameras that can collect data for Chinese intelligence. Hickey Vision hired one of those PR firms, Mercury Public Affairs, which has been able to offer jobs to a stream of, foreign, of former politicians and political appointees, mostly from the Obama administration. This is a classic model of corruption in the Washington swamp. A Middle Eastern friend of mine called this phenomenon American delayed corruption. With the promise of a lucrative job in a company representing foreign interests, those politicians and political appointees ensure they will do nothing to go against the interests of their future client while they are in office. And this is the tip of an iceberg. I cannot emphasize enough the scandal of the extraordinary number of former officials, cabinet members, ambassadors to China, senior military officers who have taken to representing Chinese businesses and in the process, Chinese strategic interests. As the Washington Times has reported, former Montana Senator and Ambassador to China, Max Baucus, has advocated Beijing's line in, in the debate about the origins of the coronavirus. 
Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's Stonebridge Group has China as its biggest client and promotes Chinese business interests. Her firm has supplied several of its employees as senior officials currently serving in the current administration. Then there's the role of American corporations who depend on China for a major part of their business. These include companies like Microsoft, Apple, Bloomberg, and many others. They operate political action committees that are heavily involved in contributing, politician, to, contributing to politicians whose positions on China just happen to be consistent with Beijing's interests. The CEOs of some of these countries, companies have regularly attended and spoken at Chinese uh, conferences uh, sponsored by uh, propaganda organizations there. Wall Street firms play a large part also in all of this, and uh, particularly in influencing Washington policymakers. The dean, uh, the associate dean of Renmin University, Di Dongsheng, explained to a Chinese audience in November 2020 as follows. We had people up there inside America's core circle of power. We had our old friends. During the last three to four decades, we used the core circle inside of America's real power. As I said, Wall Street has a very profound influence over America's domestic and foreign affairs since the 1970s. But most importantly, after 2016, Wall Street couldn't control Trump. During the U.S.-China trade war, they tried to help. My friends in the U.S. told me that they tried to help, but they couldn't. Now, with Biden winning the election, the traditional elites, political elites, the establishment, they have a very close relationship with Wall Street. You all heard that Trump uh, uh, said Biden's son has securities companies all over the world. But who helped Biden's son build his global companies? Well, this is a quotation from, from uh, the dean of, uh, associate dean of a Chinese university. So here's another clue. The CCP helps the families of senior officials and senior senators and so on by, uh, by helping their families helping their relatives get rich. And this has a corrupting effect on those officials. Let me go into just a couple of other things here. China has gained huge influence over Hollywood and potentially over our national culture. The Chinese have been making major moves to acquire controlling interests in major um, US movie production studios. They also own the entire AMC movie theater chain. And this represents a potentially dangerous concentration of power of both production and distribution of movies. Add to, the fact, add to this fact that China permits only 34 American movies to be shown in theaters in China every year. So that in the interest of entering the huge China market, the largest movie market in the, in the world, Hollywood producers tailor their films so as not to offend Beijing, and even to pro promote positive portrayals of Chinese heroic figures and China itself. Chinese influence is so great 
that it was able to compel one studio to change the entire theme of a movie. The film was a modern remake of Red Dawn, a Cold War movie about a Soviet invasion of the United States, only this one was about a Chinese invasion of the United States. Chinese influence got the studio to transform the invaders into North Koreans. In 1997, Hollywood re released three movies that offended the CCP, two that portrayed China's invasion of Tibet, and a third that showed China's judicial system in an unflattering light. In retaliation, all the directors and the main actors were put on a blacklist, which is honored by production studios here in America so as not to offend China. Meanwhile, the studios and the parent companies that produced the offending films were denied access to the China market for five years. In the wake of that event, all American movies are now subjected to review and censorship by the CCP's propaganda department. The censorship is capricious and can change precipitously. In response, Hollywood avoids the problem by accentuating its own self-censorship. There are other influence vehicles that should be mentioned. Some involve traditional public diplomacy, such as uh, the Chinese People's Association for Friendship with Foreign Countries, which promotes people-to-people -people friendship and cooperation. There's China's Sister Cities programs that has 200 relationships in U.S. cities. These are part of the bottom-up influence operation designed to cultivate local officials. But then there are more insidious vehicles that are truly subversive. China has been involved in narcotics warfare for many years. It used narcotics as a weapon during the Korean War so successfully that Soviet Party boss Nikita Khrushchev ordered the USSR to replicate that program within the Soviet bloc. In recent years, Beijing has exported enormous quantities of fentanyl, which has become an, uh, an, its own epidemic in America. <clears throat> they know uh, they are able to control what gets sent through the Chinese postal system. The Chinese platform TikTok promotes drug use amongst American teenagers. It also exposes young teens to pornography and guides them into ever more extreme varieties of it. China has similarly targeted American youth by marketing millions of video games that contain messages to influence young minds. The video game industry is more lucrative than the entire film industry and the professional sports industry combined. Beijing's systematic propaganda and cultural warfare in the video game medium is just beginning. As the ancient Roman historian Livy explained, the surest way to defeat your enemy is to spread amongst his population the ideas of selfishness and hedonism. The CCP has absorbed this lesson and we have scant defenses against it. The consequence of all these efforts has been a 30-year reverie by our foreign policy establishment concerning the meaning of the rise of the Chinese Communist Party. A misjudgment that former National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien characterized as the worst national security failure since the 1930s. We have brought ourselves actively to aid China's rise. 
to assist it in the development of 10,000 different technologies to permit their spies to run rampant throughout the country, to steal our intellectual property, to put our companies out of business, to gain ever greater military power at our expense. China has literally come to own way too many Americans, including those upon whose judgment our, about national security our citizens depend. While China has been building up its military power and its economic and political influence, our own military posture has declined dramatically. Much of our army's equipment is worn out and is not being replaced. We sign arms control agreements with Russia and deprive ourselves of important deterrent forces, all as if China's armed forces didn't exist. We tolerate Russia's violations of these agreements, and we ignore China's acquisition of some of these very weapons. We have let China take the lead in developing space weapons and arguably the weaponization of our artificial intelligence. Our Navy has been shrinking while China has been building a Navy that exceeds ours in numbers of ships and continues to outpace us. So what do we do about all of this? The first thing is that our leaders have to tell the truth. The truth is the most powerful weapon in our democracy because when the people hear it, they and their elected representatives are more likely to make the right decisions. The truth does two other important things to strengthen our national security. It builds a pro-defense consensus uh, without which no coherent and effective measures can be taken. Telling the truth sends a signal of strength to our enemies. It lets them know that we are no longer censoring ourselves, that we have the moral courage to face reality. It lets our enemies know that we have the will to defend ourselves. It's a signal of moral strength that enhances the credibility of our deterrent posture. We have to collect information and intelligence about Chinese propaganda, disinformation, subversion, and other influence operations. Lies and influence operations thrive in the darkness, and this is why so many of them are conducted covertly. Once we've analyzed them, figured out their themes and their target audiences, the patterns of their distribution, we have to expose them so that they don't succeed. We have to vastly increase our counterintelligence resources, especially well-trained personnel who are capable of countering not only espionage, but the covert activities of the Chinese influence activities that Chinese intelligence operatives are conducting. We have to limit the number of visas we give to Chinese visitors of all kinds, because all of them are subject to pressures by the CCP to conduct propaganda and, and collect intelligence. Diplomatically, we have to begin a common sense policy of reciprocity. This means that we should not give Chinese propagandists posing as journalists any more visas than Beijing gives to our journalists. This means expelling Chinese propagandists when Beijing's goons harass our journalists in China. This means reciprocity in how we treat Chinese non-governmental organizations. It means reciprocity in travel. If Americans are restricted from traveling in China, China Chinese should be restricted from traveling here. There are, we, we have to stop various more specific forms of influence operations. We have to shut down the Confucius Institutes. We have to protect 
our scholars who study China from cyber sabotage and other sanctions such as restrictions on travel to China. If our scholars are denied entry to China, Chinese experts should be denied entry here. We have to do what we can, and there may not be a lot, to, to stop Chinese influence over Hollywood, the video gaming industry, and other aspects of our popular culture. We have to maximize the use of the Foreign Agents Registration Act to restrict influence operations. We have to do what's possible. It has to be done realistically, incrementally, to decouple our commercial relations with communist China until it stops conducting Cold War policies against us. Lenin once said that the capitalists will sell the rope with which the communists will hang them. Is this going to be America's legacy, or do we represent something a little higher in the affairs of mankind? Thank you very much for listening. Dr. Nitsowski would be happy to answer your questions. the size of the, the economies of the two nations and the budgets, wouldn't you say that the Chinese are doing a much better job at spending their money than we are? Um, I think that they are, that they have a coherent strategy. And they, you know, they are able to conduct policy, consistent policies over the long term, which is something that democracies simply couldn't can't do. Winston Churchill said that uh, democracies like ours are incapable of conducting a consistent policy for more than any more than about five years at a time. And uh, the, uh, the Chinese communists can, can do things over the long term and they can set their priorities and they don't have the constraints uh, of uh, a voting public that might want to set different priorities in allocation of resources so it's a we we have our strategic advantages but that's one of the strategic advantages that they enjoy so, good morning Dr. Michowski Blake here thank you very much for a wonderful talk this morning as always and I've got three questions in one uh, I'm most assuredly no expert uh, amidst uh, the discussion your your talk this morning. What do you think the greatest weakness of the CCP is? That's one. Two, do you believe that there is a silent majority in China, the Chinese population, that feels otherwise from the party? They don't say anything for fear of their life. So a lot I know. And then three, uh, my understanding is that China is not part of the world currency system. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Those are great questions. Um, I propose in a future lecture to deal with what our strategy towards China ought to be. Um, I only touched on a couple of things here, most of which at the very end of the, my talk had to do with defensive measures. Uh, I didn't even intimate offensive measures. Um, the Chinese Communist Party's greatest weakness is their lack of legitimacy. 
They rule by conspiracy, force, and lies. Uh, they, they, they rule by intimidation. They have a massive internal security system because they're afraid of their own people. The central fact of political life in communist countries is the regime's fear of their own people. We can never forget this. Their fear of their own people and the size of their uh, of their internal and, 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 and the dimensions. I mean, in all different ways of their internal security system is a, a an indication of how afraid they are. They are afraid of religion. They are afraid of the free flow of information and communications. They are monitoring everything. They have created an Orwellian totalitarian state. Uh, they are they collect uh, you know everything on on on, on their people uh, their, to to establish their social credit score for each individual. They have more people in their internet police than they uh, policing Chinese citizens than they have members of the People's Liberation Army. They uh, th th they have their Lao guy. Uh, have, have you ever heard of the Lao guy? The Lao guy is the Chinese Gulag Archipelago. But you won't read about it in the Washington Post, in the New York Times, or any of the other famous American media, because that's one of the four taboos. You may have heard a little bit about the Uyghur camps, but what about the ones where the Falun Gong practitioners and the Christians and, and political dissidents are, are doing slave labor? We, we, for a little while, there was a, a Lao Guy Museum here in, in, in Washington uh, that hardly anybody knew about. And the Washington Post certainly wouldn't tell you about it on the pages of the style section. So they're afraid of their own, they're scared to death of their own people. And, and so, and it's because they, their people were free to choose them. They probably wouldn't choose the Communist Party to be their governors. And this was the problem of the Bolsheviks and every other communist regime. And so they, they have this massive internal security system. So the, the, the Chinese people uh, are, uh, have a mixed attitude. Uh, the, you know, the totalitarian state is awfully good at brainwashing people, at politically socializing them. And the Chinese, uh, have used a, a classic method, the classic methods of national socialism. Uh, the short, the, the acronym for national socialism is Nazi. Nazi. Uh, and national socialism is where you harness the, the, uh, uh, the, the nationalist feelings and national pride of the people to your communist force. Okay? Uh, you, you, the, they, they, the communists, and this was the same in, in, under Bolshevism. They, you know, when when it was time of World War II, Stalin did not uh, mobilize his people to fight the Germans under the banner of the Great Class War or the Great Communist War. No, he called it the Vaina, which means the Great Fatherland. The Great Fatherland War, the the, 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 the Russian fatherland, and 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 he let the Orthodox priests out of the Gulag, 
in order to get their churches going up again because there was a close relationship between the Russian Orthodox Church and Russian national identity, historic national identity. Did the communists care about that identity? Only when they were threatened with absolute death. The, you know, even the liberal Nikita Khrushchev, the so-called holy, holy liberal, who would do, was doing de-Stalinization, quote unquote, he destroyed 750 traditional cultural and religious and historic monuments in Moscow City alone. Is that what you do in order to promote Russian, uh, the, the well-being of the Russian people? No, it isn't. That's not what you do. And uh, but but what but it, you know this is this is what this is the way communists do it. They will harness nationalism when they badly need it, and that's what China has been doing. Our task has to be to appeal to the Chinese people to make. A, 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 to, to connect with them, to communicate with them, and to go after China's center of gravity, which is what one does in war. And their center of gravity, which is, is that which protects their legitimacy. And that is their monopoly of information and communications. So we have representatives here from the Voice of America. Well, during the Cold War, Alexander Solzhenitsyn said that the Voice of America and Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty and today Radio Free Asia and today their, their associated television and internet uh, sites, um, he said that, that, that our broadcasters were the most powerful weapon we had in the Cold War. Scratch your favorite Washington foreign policy expert who has not studied at IWP and ask them, what do they think Solzhenitsyn was talking about? How could, how could these broadcasters be the most powerful weapon in the Cold War? How, how could it be that, 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 that Solzhenitsyn says, the power that resides in the airwaves to kindle the human spirit is beyond the scope of the Western imagination? beyond the scope of the American foreign policy establishment's imagination. You will not get an internal, you will not get an intellectually um, satisfactory answer from your favorite foreign policy expert who has not studied at IWP, where we teach this stuff. And breaking Beijing's monopoly of, 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 of communications and information is central to this because totalitarian rule depends upon the atomization of society. And that means separating every individual from everybody else. It's like when you have a little spray atomizer, that means every little tiny droplet is separated from the other droplets so that it's no longer liquid, it's a spray. Everybody, it's, the, it's, it's to make the individual stand alone all by himself against the totalitarian state. And when the people have a vehicle of communicating with each other, they can develop relationships of trust because atomization depends upon breaking down trust in society. You never know who is, a, who is an informant 
to the regime. And how many informants are there in China? I don't know. In East Germany, where they gave, kept good statistics, 25% of the population were informants to the secret police. 25%. That means you knew lots of people who were secret informers, but you didn't know who they were. And that's the way these regimes work. And so we have to connect with these people, make sure that they recognize that they're not alone, that we stand for them, that we recognize their human dignity, that we recognize their human rights, and, 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 and that they are not alone because the, the internal security system depends upon putting the people in a state of psychological despair, hopelessness, and futile resignation. And if they can develop hope that something can change for the better, then that can make the difference. But this is, we, we have to, we are only, you know, we are only, we're still in diapers now when it comes to our national strategy of how to deal with the Chinese people. The, the currency question is a much more, is a complicated one. Uh, this, this, it's very complicated, it was very complicated during the Cold War with the Soviet Union. You know, the, the Soviets had something like four or five different rubles. They had an international trade ruble, they had a cash ruble, they had bank account rubles. The, the, the Chinese, I'm not enough of an expert on the Chinese uh, use of currency. Um, the Chinese, however, are conscious of the fact that uh, we do not have a, a, a really hard currency in the dollar because it's not guaranteed. We will not guarantee its value. And we don't guarantee its value in order that we can devalue it and in the process, tax everybody covertly, which is what inflation is. Inflation is the result of the devaluation of currency. And uh, China recognizes this, but it may not have quite the resources. And I'm not talking about the cash. I'm talking about the, the let's say, the, the political uh, political institutional capacity to be able to offer the world uh, a really hard currency, which people will trust more than they trust the dollar. Thank you very much. When we speak about the enablers in the United States, among them are the jurists. Then the litigation of genocide, crimes against humanity, and all of those other issues of national security is an open field in this country. We have the, the, the statutes and we have the resources. When you portray these accusations of criminal nature by different parties you haven't mentioned, why isn't other enablers, law firms, which are very well funded, prosecuting right now. Well, uh, I did mention law firms as, as having, uh, as, as part of, of, of the influence operations. And, and I don't know enough about uh, all of the 
possibilities of being able to to subject China, uh, at least in its internal activities, to um, uh, legal sanctions. The, there is a genocide convention. Uh, uh, you know, we don't have the equivalent of the Helsinki Final Act, the, 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 the CSC, uh, you know, the, the Helsinki Final Act, which Includes human rights provisions and which made Moscow vulnerable to external um, uh, monitoring of their human rights practices. Uh, but it's a field which I would love to look into some more, and I very much appreciate your raising the issue. Uh, I think that there are, uh, you know, when when. Um, uh, when China is using lawfare against, you know, American researchers, uh, we need to be able to think about some kind of reciprocal action, and uh, and we need to be able to help to help defend uh, people who are subjected to this type of harassment. Uh, the the, um, the Chinese researcher, the particular lawsuit that I mentioned in my talk, uh, is one where the American researcher would be vulnerable to this lawsuit inside China. Um, but the, the problem is that uh, even in the United States, he might retain legal counsel and incur uh, expenses in order to somehow protect himself from some angles of this legal harassment that, uh, that he may not imagine. Uh, and he may not need it, but he may feel as though he needs it. Uh, and that will cost him money, and if, if all of a sudden our people are have to start uh, you know, retaining counsel to, to defend themselves against uh, hypothetical possibilities, uh, you know, that can have a very chilling effect on people. Uh, I've always believed that uh, the United States should have had and still can have the equivalent of the Nuremberg trial for uh, the Soviet Union and other communist countries. Uh, this is something that was a major instrument to anathematize communism. We did a very good job in this country of, of globally anathematizing Nazis. We have not done the same for communism, and people are utterly unaware of it. I, and, and people in, in our school teaching history, I mean, we had an intern once at IWB. Thank goodness he wasn't an enrolled student who had never heard of Mao Zedong. We had another intern, uh, I mean, he was, I think, a college freshman, who had never heard of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, they, in the Pentagon, they no longer use the Cuban Missile Crisis as a reference point for their war gaming, because people do no longer know what the Cuban Missile Crisis is. Uh, this is just, it's, it's almost unthinkable to me, but this is what's happening in our schools where people are, are being taught, uh, you know, are being given, our students are being given ideological propaganda rather than honest history. And so, uh, anyway, I would love to be able to explore what you suggest. And see and, and include that uh, in, in my, my thinking about it.
uh, in the face of all of this insidious Cold War efforts, uh, Chinese appear to be increasingly successful in suppressing Hong Kong and the uh, strong uh, notions of freedom. There. Uh, and the indicators seem to me that uh, viewing that as a uh, ongoing success, they're getting increasingly now bold about uh, Taiwan. Where are we with the walking the tightrope of our one China policy in Taiwan uh, and actually coming, potentially coming to the aid if they were to be militarily attacked by China? It's a great question. Uh, right now, I think the credibility of our deterrent has reached a modern nadir. Uh, uh, the most recent spectacle of the president meeting where he said that we would come to the defense of Taiwan. Uh, and that comment was walked back by the White House uh, people who write his talking points. Uh, you know, this, what kind of a message does that send to China and how does it, how does it in, in increase our deterrence? Uh, the, uh, you know, for years we would do freedom of navigation in the South China Sea, sending ships through the, the Taiwan Straits, and so on. And, uh, uh, and then during the Obama administration, uh, that, uh, the regularity stopped. It, it, it pretty much stopped for a long time. And then finally, it dawned on people that maybe we ought to start doing it again. And when they sent a ship through, it looked like we were engaging in a provocation uh, that, that would that would uh, aggravate you know, tensions with Beijing. If we had just kept doing it this whole time, we wouldn't be seen as some kind of a, an aggressor. Uh, but you know, we have to crawl out from holes like that, which we have dug for ourselves. And it is, it is, it's, it's complete strategic incoherence. And the result of that is because people have been in our national defense establishment and the foreign policy establishment were psychologically anesthetized. And, and, and there was, I mean, if there is, you know, there's this expression that was used uh, for, for development of vaccines, warp speed. We need to start thinking about warp speed for our armed forces. If for no other reason than the acquisition of those armed forces is a signal of that, that strengthens our deterrence. We have to learn how to send signals of strength rather than signals of weakness to our adversaries. You know, there's a, such a thing that we talk about at IWP. Provocative weakness. That is a phenomenon that invites war. And provocative weakness can be manifested in a number of different ways. Uh, but, but, you know, our inconstancy about the Taiwan issue is one of them. You know, when, when, when President Trump decided that he was going to uh, have the, the Taiwanese be able to meet with and visit some of our senior officials, this was a signal of strength. Now, when all of that has been vitiated, uh, it's a signal of weakness. Well, we need, to, we need to send signals of strength if we want to deter a war. And, and uh, you know, anyway, we, we are, we are simply not being serious right now. We're not serious. Okay, one, one last question, and then we have food in the next room, and you have you can ask questions in the, later on. 
Yeah, actually, yeah. Oh. Yes, sir. Uh, I totally enjoyed your um, talk. My question is, you know, that for some reason, you know, what I sense that China controls the world and even to some extent USA so much economically that there is very little we can do. Like, look at China is coming up with this one belt, one road initiative and they are spending one trillion dollars. And we cannot match up with that investment. President Biden, when he came into the power, he said that we are going to come up with this matching approach, but then it died out. Now with this pandemic, all the imports and exports are suffering and we are realizing that we are so much dependent on China's imports that even everything is getting expensive or we are running into the shortage. Uh, of some materials. So what I sense that the way China is controlling economically, it is very difficult to, to do anything against China and what are our intelligence agencies doing when you are mentioning all these things which China has been doing for the last 30 years and there was no kind of warning given that this is happening and we should trying to protect ourselves. Thank you. Great, an excellent point about China's economic influence and its leverage over this country. And we are, for at least the foreseeable future, trapped into having commercial relations with and dependence upon China for all sorts of things. But we need to start moving at all due, uh, with all, uh, you know, deliberation to uh, free ourselves from some of that dependence. I mean, we used to make a lot of our, if not most, of our pharmaceuticals in Puerto Rico. That's because Puerto Rico had some uh, special tax advantages for the production of pharmaceuticals. Then somewhere along the line, uh, they decided to uh, lift those special tax uh, benefits to Puerto Rico uh, because they thought they would earn a little bit more tax money if they could start taxing that industry. And uh, the, far, and the, the, the big pharmaceutical companies decided to just lift up the, all their operations, take them out of Puerto Rico and bring them to China. And so now China, uh, you know, can embargo our, our <laughs> critical pharmaceuticals, antibiotics, uh, we depend to some extent on India, thank goodness, for, for some of the rest of it. But we need to reconstitute this. This is an absolute strategic priority of the United States. And uh, somebody needs to be thinking about this. But, um, you know, very few people think like this. Very few people think like this. And we need to try to uh, restore a defense industrial this country. You know, if, 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 if we depend for Japan, let's be a good friendly country for our machine tools, then what happens in a war when those machine tools are being brought by a ship uh, to the United States and enemy submarines sink those ships? Uh, where do we get our machine tools? So 
There are certain, you know, defense industrial infrastructure policy is an instrument of economic statecraft, which our professional schools of international affairs don't teach. We teach it at IWP because we teach all the instruments of statecraft. We can't get into that subject in minute detail, but we can at least get our students sensitive to the fact, sensitive to the fact that this exists, that this is a problem, that somebody has to think about teaching minerals rare earth metals. The Chinese, you know, here we want to do all this green energy. Green energy requires batteries. Batteries require lithium. And China is getting, is cornering the global market on lithium. And nobody's thinking about this on the American side, except maybe a couple of gnomes over at the defensive, you know, the, the Industrial College of the Armed Forces. Those are the only people serious about this. There may be a few people in the Pentagon does any, is there ever a National Security Council meeting about subjects like this? No, no, there isn't. Because we have a hard time walking and chewing gum at the same time. And uh, we, we have a very hard time in this country developing an integrated strategy. And so you know, these, those are just you know, huge, huge problems of how we deal with this. So, I, uh, you know, I think that this is a this this requires leadership. I, I've got to say, Secretary of State Pompeo understood all of this stuff. He understood the distinction between the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people, and you know, and he understands the difference between a tyrannical government and the people who suffer under the tyranny. And and that's this is that is a revolutionary concept in American foreign policy. And yet, you know, we don't consistently behave as if that's something that that, uh, that, that, that's, that should be de rigueur in, in, in our foreign policy. So, uh, you know, I think that um, we have to crawl out of this deep hole we have dug ourselves, and we have to do it incrementally. It is a balancing act, but we have to do it by telling the American people the truth. National leaders need to tell the truth. And when they don't, that means they're censoring themselves, and self-censorship is a sign of what we called in the, in the Cold War, with respect to the Finns, who have a tradition of resisting aggression, we call it Finlandization. And, uh, and it's where you center yourself so as not to offend the, the aggressive totalitarian power who's breathing down your neck. And we have censored ourselves, our, our American presidents, one after another, have censored themselves. Either, you know, for, for multiple reasons, have not told the American Mike Pence delivered a speech in, I think, late 2018 or something like that in, at the Hudson Institute, which was which finally told the truth. A major, a, a, the first time a president or a vice president made a talk telling the truth about the, the inimical uh, uh, you know, implications of, of, the, of the rise of communist China. 
It, it, that speech was likened to Winston Churchill's Westminster speech, his Iron Curtain speech. Uh, but and, and, and Secretary Pompeo was uh, uh, had developed a strategy, recognizing that this isn't just economic conflict; it's not just information conflict. It's ultimately an ideological struggle of which kind of form of government are we going to live under. And, and China conducts this Cold War against us, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. Because we have an alternative concept of legitimacy. The consent of the government, which is a mortal threat to the Chinese regime. This is what this is really all about. It's an ideological conflict, and, and, and communists, communists everywhere suffer from this threat, which is why they have to communize everybody or turn them into uh, tribute payers, part of the tributary system. And so that's what it's all about.